We are in chapter eight. Um, this is a section from chapter seven, really on, where Solomon has put a little bit of his real angstiness away, like he has in one, two, three, four, and five and six. He's kind of put that away, and he's like a mentor now. It's like I just think of it as coffee with grandpa. Sit down. He's got some wisdom to expound, but. Biblical wisdom, I think we get it wrong. And I was talking to a staff person yesterday about this. Um, I think we want, like when we pray for wisdom, a lot of times what we're actually praying for is like a paint by the numbers thing, right? Like we just wanna know, give me the little detail of what I need to do right now. Give me the color, give me the shape so I can just paint a little number. That's kind of what we want when we pray for wisdom, correct? But Have you ever seen a paint by the number portrait hung in a museum? Is the Louvre saying, hey, we got room? You know, the Mona Lisa is getting a little bit old and tired. We'd like your paint by the number puppy. That thing is awesome. No, right? Masterpieces don't come from that kind of life. It doesn't come from that. So biblical wisdom is very different. I, I think of it like the bumps on the road of Interstate 5. That's kind of what it is. So it's these guardrails that kind of channel you in the right direction, but it's not gonna tell you the kind of car to drive. I don't think God really cares. You know, I want God to love Volkswagens. Well, I don't know if he actually does. You know, I think he does, but I don't know. Maybe he doesn't. I, I, it doesn't tell you how fast to drive or how slow to drive, right? It does, drive safely. It doesn't tell you what exits to take. Biblical wisdom is not like that. It's principles, right? And through those principles, we're gaining bumps on the side of the road that keep us kind of engaged through prayer, through counsel. But there's a lot of things on Interstate 5, if you would, the Interstate of Life, that you're gonna come across and be like, I don't have a Bible verse for that right? Your grandma, and I've talked with a couple about this pretty recently. Uh, an, an older grandma, 84, she has a terminal disease, and they're trying to figure out pain medication for her. Like, what should we do? Is there a Bible verse for this? Like, not really. <laughs> so what should we do? Give her none? Give her a glass of whiskey every once in a while? Well, maybe, yeah. Should she smoke some pot? Should she take some oxycodone? I'm like, I don't know. And this is for you to pray about, to talk with her and to think it through because the options all seemed open to them. And I was like, if I had a choice between Oxycontin and marijuana, which was his real question, I said, honestly, I'd take marijuana. I think the the repercussions of that are less on somebody's body than what I've seen with Oxycodin. He's like, really? Man, I grew up thinking so many bad things about marijuana. I said, yeah, it's probably true, but she's 84 and she's terminal. And that may be the best thing for her. I talked to another guy. He's like, should I buy my daughter a car? I'm like, I have no idea. I think some daughters, you should buy them a car. And then other daughters, it should be, no, you got to work. It's just their personality. And that's what wisdom does. It gives you the, the, prince, the bumps, but it's not going to tell you like pain by the numbers. Here's exactly how you do every little thing. Should I help this homeless guy? I don't know. Maybe helping him actually hurts him. I don't know. It's wisdom. It's asking questions. It's conversation. Matt, how should, like someone asked me, how should I vote? I'm like, listen, do not ask me that question. I mean, that is a tangle. Listen, I just said, there's never going to be Jesus on the ballot. All right. So let's get that straight right away. So they're always going to be flawed. They're going to be people. They're going to have problems. You got to decide which one has the fewest problems in your estimation and then check that box. Right? So that's wisdom. And Ecclesiastes now is getting into that kind of, hey, I'm gonna help you, son, daughter, grandson, granddaughter, to put some bumps on the side of the road so that it keeps you within the bounds of biblical wisdom. But so does God's spirit. So does scripture. So does the people that God has around us, all those things. I think mistakes are one of the ways that God puts bumps on the side of the road and helps to keep us. I think it's a mistake not to allow people to make mistakes. That that can be the best learning ever is when you really blow it. Oh, I read a quote by Tom Selleck. Remember him, Magnum PI? Who remembers Tom Selleck? Yeah, 
He still rocks it. It's because the big mustache, isn't it? So Tom Selleck had this uh, great quote. He said, whenever I get full of myself, and this was in, he was in Honolulu filming Magnum P.I. He's like, whenever I get really full of myself, I just remember this nice couple that came up to me and they brought a camera. So he got ready and made this pose. And they said, no, no, we want you to take our picture. <laughs> they didn't even know who he was, right? <laughs> I thought that was awesome. Like sometimes your failures are the best. Oh, that's a learning moment, okay. So that's where we're at right now. This is wisdom. It's just, it just keeps piling on. So chapter seven is one of my favorite chapters in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's just one thing after another, after another. That was last week, brilliant. Chapter eight continues in this same coffee with grandpa, here's some wisdom. So verse one, chapter eight. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command. A little self-serving, isn't it? <laughs> because God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything. Although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be. And who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that's done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. So Solomon now turns his eye to wisdom when it comes to authority. This big kind of thing of authority. And he says a couple things. Number one, he says, authority is better than anarchy. So obey. That's verses one or verses two and three and four. The king has a purpose, Romans 13. Power has a purpose, right? And when there is a vacuum of power, look out. If you know history, just go back to Iran, right after Saddam Hussein fell. What happened in the next three or four years in Iran or in Iraq? Remember that? It just went crazy. Muqtada al-Sadr, just thinking he's gonna become, make a caliphate. It just went insane for a while. Why? Because there was a power vacuum and it became anarchy and it was way, way bad. So we can complain about government and we probably should. Yeah, that's a good thing. <laughs> but on the other side, I would say this. I sure like clean water. You've been watching the news about what's happening right now in Venezuela? Brutal. I sure like clean water. I sure like good roads to drive on, right? I sure like peace. So the best way as a believer when it comes to government is to be thankful and prayerful. Thankful and prayerful. Thank you that we have a government that keeps the peace, that allows us to meet like this, that gives us running water, that gives us roads. Be thankful. And I think that's what Psalm would say. Anarchy is bad. Authority is better, so obey. Number two, when it comes to authority, there is a right time. Verses five, six, and seven, right? Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing. The wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything. There is a right time, be patient. You ever do the right thing at the wrong time? If you're married, we know timing is everything. When things aren't timed correctly, look out, bad things happen. When you say the wrong thing 
or excuse me, when you say the right thing at a wrong moment, nothing good happens about that, right? When you and your spouse are disagreeing about something and you're kind of staring off into the cosmos and there is this thought that starts drifting around your head, right? And you're thinking to yourself, I should not say that. Whatever I do, I should not say that thought. And then all of a sudden it just like comes out and what happens? You got weeks and weeks of unpacking problems because it was the wrong time. It might be a true thing, but it just was said at the wrong moment. When I do marriage counseling, I say this. I say, you got one time every six weeks. Like store them up, journal them out, write them out, think about them, pray about them, pray about saying them right. And then take your spouse out for a great meal without the kids, laugh, enjoy each other. And then at the end of the day in your car say, okay, honey, okay, sweetie, here's some things I've been thinking through. That way it's not a constant dripping all the time, wrong time, ah, it's once every six weeks. Okay, let's unpack some stuff. Let's work through them. All right, let's get some answers. That to me is a much better time. Be patient, right? You can say the right thing at the wrong time and it's just wrong. It's totally wrong, right? So um, like I had a habit for a while at funerals of saying maybe the right thing at the wrong time because it's my natural tendency and I'm probably in the habit of it from coming to church to see people that I know from church and be like, hey man, how you doing? Don't say that to a family that just lost their mom at a funeral. Hey, how are you doing? Because all of a sudden they start crying. I'm like, oh my goodness, I know how they're doing. So at funerals, I have this policy now. I shut my mouth, I smile, and I just give them a hug. That's all I do. Because too often I've done stupid things, just, just trying to be something, I don't know, make conversation. They don't need to make conversation. Smile and hug, that's it. There's a right time. Pray for timing. One of the keys in life, the older you get, I'm 47 now, is learning, I want the right time for this. Now is not the right time to tell my wife that, my kid that, my employee that, my neighbor that, now is not the right time. God, help me to say it at the right time. Wisdom. Number three, there is a power that's greater than anyone. This is verses eight and nine, so be humble. Death, war, and evil. I don't care how rich you are. I don't care how powerful you are. I don't care how much status you have. I don't care how much privilege you have. I don't care how much authority you have. You're not gonna get away from death, war, and evil. You will not stop them. They will humble you. Those three things will humble anybody. Just ask King Nebuchadnezzar. He had it all, maybe the greatest king in the Bible, and he is humbled humbled greatly. Red Fox, I read this quote on him about death. He said this, health nuts are going to feel really stupid someday when they're lying in a hospital, dying of nothing. Doesn't matter how much kale you eat, how much almonds you eat, doesn't matter. At one day, death will stalk you. So be humble. Number four and lastly, Careful who you submit to. He has this little phrase at the very end. He goes, I observed all this stuff. I applied my heart to it. When a man had power over a man to his hurt. The last thing is this, when it comes to authority, be very careful who you submit yourself to. Because they get a power over you, over your life. Your work has it. Your marriage has it business opportunities that you get involved with people, they have it. You give a certain amount of influence in your life to people in each of those decisions. And so Solomon would say, be very careful because they can hurt you. You get pulled into whatever they're doing. You are in a way yoked with them and that yoking is gonna steer your life in a certain direction and look out. You can lose then what actually matters. Like there's a scene from a movie that I always keep in my mind. It's uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Bueller, Bueller, not that scene. It's the last scene. It's Cameron, the sickly friend. 
His dad's just multi, multi-billionaire, has the collection of Ferraris. They borrowed the Ferrari for the day. And they're at the end of the movie, they're trying to run it in reverse to take the miles off of it. Remember that scene? And she's going, and it's not working, right? And so now they're like, oh no, what are we gonna do? And then Cameron just starts kicking the back of that, I don't know what it is, $2.3 million Ferrari. Just smash, smash. And he's saying, I hate this car. I hate this car. Dad, you love this car. I hate this car because you love this car. And he's just kicking it over and over and over. This car took you away from me. I hate this car. And finally he knocks it off the blocks. And then it just goes, shing, out the glass window over a cliff and just lands down below and just steam comes up. You know, it's just like, it's done. That's a nightmare to me. Because what Cameron was saying was this, dad, you got stole away from me because you made these priorities and you made these decisions and they pulled you away from what really matters, raising your son. And I don't ever wanna have one of my kids up at the building that we're building right now, kicking the side of the building. I hate this building. I hate this building because it took my dad away from me. And so I always have to be very careful about what I commit myself to because it can end up hurting what I love the most. And every person has to weigh that out, get those bumps in your life to make sure what actually matters, you're spending the right time on so that your kids don't end up kicking what you thought mattered when it didn't. Look out. Look out who you commit yourself to. Always have a grid in your mind. Like like I, I call it a relational budget. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Love your wife like Christ loved the church. And then your children. There's no greater joy than to know my children walk in the truth. And then fourthly is ministry. And that's my grid. God, am I doing those things in the right order? Because if they get out of order, I'll have one of my kids somewhere kicking something I loved because it stole them from me. Be careful what you submit yourself to, right? Wisdom. Then verse 10, I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things, wickedness. This also is vanity because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. Wisdom when it comes to being deceived. So Solomon heads of this funeral. He's at this funeral about this guy he knows is a dirtbag. He's a wicked dude, evil guy, deceived, acted religious, but everyone knew what he did Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, but Saturday he's in the synagogue. Everybody knows it, he's a dirtbag. But then they get up there and when they're eulogizing him, it's all kinds of praise and he's this great guy. And Solomon's just sitting there, really? You ever been to a funeral like that? Everybody knows the dude's a dirtbag, but everybody's saying nice things about him. It's kind of weird, isn't it? It's like in his life, he didn't want to live right. Why do we want to give him a right, righteous death? And I love the guy. Like there'll often be one like ornery dude who will stand and be like, well, we all know he was a dirtbag. Everyone's like, ah, oh, finally, yes. Okay, we can be real. Be careful of deception is what he's saying. Be careful. And then further than that, he says this. What's even worse is this. Why do they get away with so much evil? It's a theme of Ecclesiastes. Why do the evil people get away with evil stuff? Why doesn't God just stop them in their tracks? Why is that? People get away with evil stuff all the time. Robert Frost said this, a jury is 12 people who are chosen to decide who has a better lawyer. And there's some truth to that. Like you can hire yourself out of most of your problems. People say nice things about evil people. I read this long Atlantic article a couple years ago on Roman Polanski. Man, I was just like, why, does his, why, why are his films anywhere? He's a child molester and a rapist. Why do we celebrate this guy? It's unbelievable. Evil people being celebrated. So what do we do? What's the answer? Well, I love this old 
I think it's probably a joke more than anything, but this atheist farmer who decided to show his believing neighbor, God doesn't exist. So he went out, plowed his field on a Sunday. Then he fertilized his field on a Sunday. He tilled it in on a Sunday. He planted it on a Sunday. He watered it on a Sunday. He weeded it on a Sunday. He harvested it on a Sunday and he had a bumper crop that year, more than ever. So he went over to his neighbor and said, what about that? And his neighbor said, yeah, God doesn't pay all of his bills in October. Like it's still coming for you. I think that's what he says in verse 12. Though a sinner does an evil hundred times and prolongs his life, listen, eventually it's coming for you. Why doesn't God get rid of all the pimps and drug dealers? Well, here's what I believe. It's coming for him. Justice is coming. The sheriff will return if you would, and he'll round them up and there will be a payment. And by the way, there's this phenomenal thinker. His name is Miroslav Volf. I probably mentioned his book a hundred times. Um, he said he, he's a survivor of the ethnic cleansings in Kosovo when Flamids were just slaughtered. And he's there trying to work through this with people. And he would, he would meet these young men who had just seen their whole family destroyed. They escaped somehow. And his job was to talk them out of going and getting vengeance. And he said this, this never worked. It never worked to say that young man, violence doesn't solve anything, buddy. You know, if you fight fire with fire, you'll just end up with a bigger fire. He said, the only thing to, that worked with these young men was this, to say, justice is coming. There is one who sees and the one who sees will repay. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. He said that was the only thing that would keep these young men from going and extracting their own vengeance. It was the sheriff's gonna come back and he'll make this thing right. That's what you have to understand when you see evil, when you see what seems like people a hundred times getting away the same thing, deceiving, living wickedly. No, God sees, God knows and justice will be brought about by him. And then secondly, verses 15 through 17, puts it like this. There's a banny, starting at verse 14, there's a banny that takes place on earth. There are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said, this is all vanity. And I commended joy for man has nothing better under the sun, but to eat and to drink and to be joyful for this will go with him through his toil all the days of his life that God has given to him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the busyness that is done on earth, how neither day nor sleep to one's eyes, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that's done under the sun. However much Man may toil in seeking, he may not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, no, he cannot find it out. Okay, so we frame the world real simply, good and evil. It's how we frame it. It's how every blockbuster superhero movie is made, good and evil. I do not think that's the framing of the Bible. I think the framing of the Bible is this, faith, and evil. That you're not always gonna see the good triumph and the good get this, what you're gonna see is faith. That our ideal life is trusting the way that Jesus did it. And by trusting the way that Jesus did it, that he overcame evil with good, that the first shall be last, that you turn the other cheek, that by serving people, you get on top. That's how you win when we trust the life of Jesus, because what Solomon says in these verses is real simple. You're not gonna figure it out. This whole thing about wickedness, this whole thing about the mystery of evil, this whole thing, you're just not gonna figure it out. Even wise people that think they got it, they don't know it. So instead, the only solution the Bible offers is this, faith, trust Jesus, follow his way, follow how he lived, that he is the ultimate bumps in the side of the road that guide you and me into the right way of living life, that he's it, all right? So, and we'll kind of loop back in on some of the stuff that I skipped right there, but we'll do chapter nine super quick. All this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it's hate or love, man does not know, both are before him. 
It is the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and to the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As good as the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that's done under the sun. And the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished and forever they have no more share in all that's done under the sun. We looked at this on Sunday, death. Verse six is a text that's used by annihilationists. You guys know what annihilationist is? Okay, wow. So uh, when we die, there are different thoughts on what happens to us. Some say that you die, uh, you're brought before a judgment seat, Romans chapter, or, yeah, well, Revelation chapter 20 is the best example. You're brought before a judgment seat, the books are opened, you're judged, some go into the lake of fire, some go into the, the presence of God based on our allegiance to Jesus, right? So what happens to people then in the lake of fire? So there's eternal conscious torment, which means you're in hell for eternity being tormented, right? That's one side. The other side is, hey, you're, you're tormented for a while. And once you've been tormented enough, you disappear. And then the third camp is annihilation. That is called conditional mortality or conditional immortality, I should say. I wasn't prepared to talk about this. Conditional immortality is this, that we all have life on earth. Only believers in Jesus get eternal life. That until you believe in Jesus, you're just a mortal person. And at the end of your mortal life, when you die, it's Ecclesiastes chapter nine, verse six, right? So I'm gonna do a series on this at some point. So I don't wanna say anything that might tip my hat, but I would say for those that believe in annihilationism, you have to always think about the context of Ecclesiastes where Ecclesiastes is looking at life apart from God. And so I don't believe it's a good text to use for people that defend that kind of view, but that's a freebie. We'll just go ahead. It's a, it's a, it, it's a annihilationism when it comes to, so Ben Carson, remember when he was running for president? You remember that? He was asked about this and it came, it was like, what? Well, that's what Seventh-day Adventists have always believed. And, but it was like, what in the world? Do you believe in that? Yes. So I'm really going off track here. So <laughs> verse seven, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. There's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. So context now. Chapters eight and nine are connected. So he said, you're not gonna understand things. Wickedness, evil, death, you're not gonna understand things, right? Death stalking us all, you're never gonna outrun it. I don't care who you are. Don't care how healthy you eat. Don't care if you get your Pilates on. Don't care how strong you are. Does not matter, you're gonna die. So with those two big ideas he's just discussed, he says this, here's the wisest way to live life. Here's the wisest way to live life. Number one, Verse seven, feast, feast. 
Eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. Go feast. Now that's gonna mean different things for each of us. For some in here, a feast is filet mignon and Don Perignon, the moans. For another person, it's hamburger helper and a strawberry soda. But whatever it is, Psalm would say, enjoy it, eat it, drink it, love it, feast. And it does say, drink your wine. There's always a debate on that. What does it mean? Can a Christian drink? So the objection to this is that the word wine just means grape juice. Have you heard that before? There's a problem with that because the same author, Solomon, writes Proverbs about a man who drinks the same word, wine, and he gets super drunk and falls down and busts himself up. And the next morning he's lost his wallet, got a new tattoo. He's like, I'm gonna do that again. And I've never drank grape juice that caused me to do that. So if you wanna consistently use the same word, then, then he's saying drink wine. But you don't have to go there. The, the whole of scripture looks at alcohol differently than we do. So when people really press me on this, I turn, the, turn them to Deuteronomy 14, verses 24 through 26. It's Moses, it's the law, right? The harsh law, 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 law. In the law, Moses says this, when you come into the promised land, and they're not in yet, and you're spread out across the whole promised land, and there's a temple set up, and you're hundreds of miles away from the temple, and you wanna go down there, and you wanna meet with God at the temple, and you wanna bring God a sacrifice, but it's really hard for you to walk your lamb or your goat or your cow 150 miles. Here's what you do. You sell it. You bind the money up in a bag. You travel with your family down to the temple. When you get to the temple, buy whatever you want. Buy a bull and have a barbecue. Buy a lamb and have a lamb barbecue. Buy some wine or buy some strong drink and feast with God. So I looked up in the Hebrew what strong drink means. Guess what strong drink means in the Hebrew? Strong drink. That's what it means, right? It's essentially get your whatever it is and head to the temple. Head to church with your wine, with whatever. I mean, that's crazy. It's the Bible. The problem with wine is this. The problem with alcohol is this. We abuse it. That's the problem with it. And as a culture, for some reason, America really abuses it. We have a huge problem with it, no doubt about it. But we abuse all kinds of things. We abuse food. People are gluttons. We abuse sex. We take God's good gifts all the time and we abuse them. So wisdom says you better make some choices about that. So for me and my house, where I'm at, I have this DNA. I know this. My dad's an alcoholic. My, his parents, both alcoholics, um, on my mom's side, my aunt, who's still alive, she's an alcoholic. Her, my mom's, my grandpa on my mom's side, an alcoholic, right? My older brother, alcoholic. My younger brother, an alcoholic. Guess what that probably means for me? I should be really careful. And so I'm really careful. And so we don't, as a family, we don't drink. I'm also in my position, it's super easy then to say to people, I just don't drink, man. I don't do it. Oh, well, why not? And I tell my whole story. Here's why. Oh, okay. Right? I, as an example to my kids, because I think they probably have that same gene in them. So I'm telling my kids, be very careful about this thing. It's a fire that has hurt a lot of people. Be very careful. But people who through wisdom, through their own guidance, through their own Holy Spirit in their life, say, man, it's no problem for me and my wife to go out to a nice restaurant and to have a glass of wine. I say, that's not a problem at all. Don't stumble anybody with it. Not a problem at all. The Bible gives you that flexibility, 100%. So yeah, be merry with wine. And you can fight all over it. I, I, don't, I don't see it. It's personal wisdom. What's wise for you? Don't be drunk. That will make that very clear. But a glass of wine, yeah, no problem, no problem. So feast, feast. Number two, let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Every day should be a party. That's what he's saying. Every single day should be a party. And this comes down to our view of God. How do we view God? 
Is he a cosmic policeman looking who he should arrest all the time? Is that how we see God? Or, or is God a father who loved to see his kids enjoy life? And I see him as a father who loved to see his kids enjoy life. Like I love in the law. God says this, three times you're to get your crew together and you're to travel down to Jerusalem. The entire nation is, and you guys are supposed to have a big giant party three times a year. It was the law. It was essentially God saying, you go down there and you party or I will kill you. Party or die. Why? Because God loves his kids. Go down there, have a giant feast. Everyone get together, have just a wonderful time, right? Break out your best clothes. Don't leave them in the closet like Imelda Marcos. Bust them out, wear them. Put cologne on your hair, put gel on your hair, cologne on your body, smell good, look good, celebrate. Every day, every day, white clothes, enjoy. Then verse nine, number three, enjoy your wife like it's your honeymoon. The word enjoy there, it's a pretty interesting word. It's ra'ah, and it means exactly what it sounds like. Ra'ah, that's what it means. I hope you can figure that out, right? Enjoy. And part of that is this. You're supposed to dwell with your wife according to knowledge. That's what the New Testament says. What that means is this. It means the moment you got married, husbands, you enrolled in, just myself, I enrolled in the day I said I do, January 15th, year 2000, I enrolled in the University of Charity. And my job from that day forward is to study her, to find out what makes her tick to know what burdens her. That my job has been, like Jesus says, come unto me and I'll give you rest. I'll be your burden bearer, Matthew chapter 11. I I wanna take any burden away from my wife that I can. So she's not burdened, so she's not overwhelmed. I wanna be doing that, right? I wanna always look at, like, like, here's here's the mistake I made. I love to camp. So we get married and I'm like, hey, let's go camping. And my wife is like, yeah, I'm not sure about tents. I'm like, you don't have to be afraid. I'm with you. Lion or a tiger or a bear comes, I'll take care of him. She's like, uh, I just don't know. So I bought a tent and we went camping one time in a tent because about 2 a.m. I hear her about ready to tear the tent apart because she's uh, a little claustrophobic and tents do that to her. So we left the tent open all night. I'd rather fight the mosquitoes than that problem. So just open and I got rid of the tent. And from, I bought a Westphalia Vanagon from that point forward knowing that I have to deal with recording knowledge. That's not gonna work anymore. It's like that, you're always looking, how do I make my life fit in to my wife's life? So that the product of that is joy. It's joy. I think too many guys sometimes, they think their wives are supposed to just like move all the way over to them. No way. Peter says, dwell with your wives according to knowledge. Study them know them, love them, listen, spend time on them. Jesus says this, where your treasure is, there will be your heart as well. That as a husband, I need to come home and I need to consciously think about things because men, we don't do this. What kind of treasure should I be putting into my wife today? What kind of conversation should I be having with her? What should I tell her about my day? That's actually a discipline because men don't naturally do that. But if we don't do that, what happens is we're no longer putting treasure into her. And what happens is then all of a sudden our heart moves somewhere else and it gets super dangerous. And then men start saying things like this, like, you know, I just don't know if I love her anymore. We talked about that last week. And we start thinking the grass is greener on another field. No, it's not. Yes, it is, Matt. Okay, if it actually is, there is a point where she was the greenest, luscious field in the world. And you said, I do to her. What changed it? Ultimately, you did, right? Something happened in whatever years has gone by and and you're the common denominator. And the beautiful thing is this, God can remake and rebuild marriages. He is in the business of redemption and it's brilliant and beautiful. Enjoy your wife. And once again, these commands in the Bible are for our good. 
you will get more mileage out of this than anything else in your life. Enjoy your wife. And then lastly, number four, work is not a four-letter word. Work with all your might. If you're 50 years old in here, statistics say this, you have spent 65,000 hours at your job. Shouldn't it be something that you do with all your might? Shouldn't it be something that you say, I'm gonna pour my heart into this thing? You may not love it, it may not be the, it doesn't matter. Do it with all your might. Do it heartily. Work hard. It's brilliant. It makes, it makes you better. You have a better attitude, right? So just wisdom. Based on, you're not gonna figure everything out, okay. But number two, death stalking you and feast. Every day's a party. Enjoy your wife if you're married. Work hard. I think that's just great wisdom. And then he has two things that vex him and then we're done. Again, I saw under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. This vexes him. The best don't always win. Have you seen that? Like for some reason, there's portions of my memory that are super strong. And like 2004, like that was a, like memories went deep. And I don't know if you remember this, but there's a guy named Ian Thorpe who was the top swimmer at the time. And then Michael Phelps was coming up as like the next guy. And so the 2004 winter, or Summer Olympics was like the clash of the titans. These two, he was the most decorated guy, Ian Thorpe, but Michael Phelps, look out, he's coming, right? And that was when Michael Phelps was given that challenge by Speedo, we'll give you a million bucks if you get more medals than Spinks did, right? Remember that? And we'll also not make you wear a Speedo anymore, which was worth a million bucks. So he's like, this could work out, right? So Ian Thorpe, He's getting ready for his qualifying match to be part of Team Australia to go against Michael Phelps. And everyone's, hey, it's, it's a given. He's gonna win this thing, no problem. There's, there's no one in Australia that's even close to him. But he's getting ready for the 400, his premium match. And he's up there and he's already, everyone's ready. And then he slips and falls off the podium into the water. And he's instantly disqualified. Do you remember that? It was massive news because they put another dude in his spot to go to the Olympics, who was not even close to his caliber, right? That just, that just happens. I think about Dan Vidlack, our own elder here at the Pan Am Games. Like he was headed to the Olympics. He was, he was going and then tore open his shoulder and everything changed for him. Like this stuff just happens. David versus Goliath. I just wonder when Solomon wrote this, if he's thinking about his own dad versus Goliath. Like, yeah, it doesn't always go to the right dude. Sometimes there are things that don't make sense. And then secondly, this is the one that's brilliant to me. I've also seen verse 13. This example of wisdom under the sun, and look at this, it seemed great to me. You guys have been in Ecclesiastes with me for a long time. Has he said that about anything yet? Right, it's usually, this was an enigma, this was hevel, this was, it was evil, I couldn't figure this out. He goes, I saw something that was great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it and a great king came against it and besieged it, right? This is America versus Costa Rica. I guess just, there's no chance. But there was found in it a poor wise man and by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man but I say that wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Not just the best don't always win, but this little section here, the wise are often overlooked. And he just begins by saying, like, I saw something that I couldn't figure out. 
Because Solomon is a wise king who used all of his wisdom to do what? Make money, get power, get women, build stuff, prestige, right? He took the normal track. He took the ambitious track. I used my wisdom to get what I wanted. Chapter two. But then he says, I saw in this city like these unsurmountable odds. It was incredible. And then in this city, there was this guy with super saving wisdom that was poor. That here was a man that didn't use all of his wisdom to make money, but used all of his wisdom to save and to serve people. And then he was despised for it. Does that sound like anything to you? Does that sound like anything to you? And so only time Solomon has marveled at something and said, that's great. This other path, right? I've been on this path right here and it's hovel and it's driven me crazy and it, there's no satisfaction and it's all vanity. But I saw this other path and it was at a path. I'm like, that's a great path. Using your wisdom to save and serve, even if you're despised for it, that's a better path. And it's totally the story of redemption. That's what it is. And Solomon, for what, however God was working on him right here, Solomon sees it and he goes, I should have taken that path. That's a life path to use your wisdom to save and to serve. Redemption, beautiful. So quickly, if you zoom out from these two chapters and you zoom out and you look at them, what the big thing is trying to say is this. We have to learn in situations that we can't understand, that don't make sense, where we know, hey, we should be had that job. I should have got that promotion. I didn't. This evil person's getting ahead, whatever it is, things that just don't make sense. We have to learn a kind of contentment that no one's born with, right? You ever have a baby that was born content? Anybody have that baby? They just came out of the womb and, you know, it, it's just like, hey, when you bring him home from the hospital, just lays in his crib and is like, hey, mom, I get it. You had 24 hours of hard labor. You think about you right now. I know I'm wet and I'm a little cold, like it was really warm in there, but it's not so warm out here. So I'm a little cold and I'm kind of hungry, but you know what? Don't worry about it. I got two thumbs. I'll just, I'll just nibble on those for a little while. And in the morning, you, you take care of me. Anybody have that baby? No way, right? Baby's mad at you. Are you kidding me? It was a lot better in there. I was instantly fed. I didn't have to think about it. Now I gotta think about it. And I'm gonna let you know what I'm thinking at 2 a.m., right? So that's just in all of us. So what Solomon is saying is there is a wise way to live life that you have to come to this kind of faith, humble understanding of life. And when you get it, here's what happens. You can enjoy everything else. Instead of trying to squeeze all these things for life, you don't have to do that anymore because you found this contentment that takes care of that angst and that pressure. Instead, you just eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart. You dress nicely. You enjoy your wife, enjoy your husband. You work hard. That's what you do. It just comes and it's brilliant. And Solomon's saying that, that that's the goal. That's the goal. And a lot of times I think the only way that you get there is by going through like hard things and then coming out of that hard thing, you're like, oh, that's, have you ever noticed that? Like it's actually a difficulty that puts things in, in perspective. It's when you kick the Ferrari over and it goes out the window that you're like, okay, everything's in perspective now. It's hard things. Have you heard of uh, the 30 Sup Supreme Pleasures? It's a guy, it's a philosopher that he, he just wrote, what he found in his life were the most pleasing things ever. Every single one of them was preceded by pain. What's the best glass of water you've ever had? When you are just in pain of thirst. What's the best time you've just had to itch something? When you sat for 45 minutes preaching a sermon with poison oak. You're like, I just need to get out that door, right? That's what he's saying. Like, hey, sometimes it's, it's those things. And, and, and the whole point of that is this. It's in your head. 
like a lot of what brings you and me joy, it's right here. It's this one and a half pound gray matter in my head. And I can make a lot of decisions in my own head that lead to an ability to eat my bread with joy, to have a merry heart, to let my garments be always white, to enjoy my wife, to work hard, like it's up here. So I think you could just summarize these two chapters real simply. Find simply something godly that you love and do it and stop freaking out. Because you have a king who came and served you and saved you and he's your peacemaker and he has promised, I'll come back for you and I'll take care of you. So find something you enjoy, stop freaking out and live. Chapters eight and nine. So Jesus, you are the wise servant king. who said foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his hand, head. You took your wisdom and you did not use it for selfish gain, but you used your wisdom to save a city called New Jerusalem full of your people. And that's life. And I pray for us, Lord, for, from this text that causes kind of, ugh, but the end is so good. If we get out of our own way, if we stop overanalyzing and overthinking and overworrying, we trust that you've saved the city. The wicked king has been defeated. The things that truly matter are secure, our salvation, our redemption, our sanctification, our destiny. They're secure. We can enjoy life. We can feast. We know you're on the throne. We know you're gonna return. We know justice will be served. We know that we will be joined by a great cloud of witnesses, people who love you from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every color, joined together, serving you, ruling and reigning with you. Oh, we can enjoy. So I pray for each of us that we would have that Holy Spirit contentment that takes care of the uh, in us so we truly can enjoy Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, March, April, May, June, 2019, 2020, until you our saving king returns for us. We pray that in your name, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.